Well, David said that I have full batteries, so I'll just keep on going until they wear out. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 46, so you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be um, looking at a few passages that are near to that as well, so, but that will be our primary text this morning. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget things. It's easy to forget our lunch or our keys or people's names. We forget faces. Sometimes we forget where we know somebody from, even though we know we know them somehow. The truth is, uh, we even forget some of the most popular people that there have lived. Chances are, I may be wrong, but probably nobody here really knows the name Thomas Sayers. But when he was living, everyone knew his name. And when he died in 1865, over 100,000 people gathered at his funeral. They poured into the grave to see his casket be lowered. They were climbing on top of tombstones to just get a glimpse at him descending. Five years earlier was his last performance, and it was so popular that Parliament shut down for half a day so they could go and attend. Uh, Trains were rerouted so they could go see Thomas Sayers at his best. And even the Queen, Queen Victoria, wanted to be informed at the conclusion of his performance how he did. The truth is, Thomas Sayers was a bare-knuckled boxer in England. He was 5'8", 150 pounds, and he was the top boxer of his day. He uh, he only had one defeat in all of his uh, competitions, and after he competed with people his own age, uh, his own size, he stepped up and went against men that were much larger than himself. Some of his uh, matches would last for three hours of bare-knuckled boxing. Some of them were 109 rounds. Well, I say all this not so that you can be well-informed on the athletes of the past, but really to show how it pales in comparison to remembering the one who has suffered no defeats and has no blind spots. The God of space and time has always pursued his people faithfully, actively, intentionally for all time, but his people instantly forget him when darkness sets in. God used Isaiah, the prophet, to challenge and encourage his people back in 700 B.C. And he has used Isaiah to challenge and encourage his people now to trust him because he does not forget the past, nor does he fear the future. Rather, God is the only one who is present in both. As we step into Isaiah this morning, we have to have the context set a bit for us. Because we're entering right into the middle of a court case. 
Isaiah is generally broken up into two large sections, chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 4 through 66. Some theologians find it helpful to think of it as the Old Testament, 39 books, and then the New Testament, the way it is presented. It's similar in that way in that God calls his people for faithfulness through his promises and his judgments in chapters 1 through 39. He starts chapter 40 with comfort, comfort my people. And he tells them to trust his faithfulness. But this time he's sending a servant that's going to fulfill what the people of Israel did not. Right in the middle of this new section, the 40 through 66, there's a trial that is put forth. The language all the way through Isaiah puts forth trials and it says, in 45:21 he says declare and present your case let them take counsel together because in this moment in history the northern kingdom of Israel had just been taken away by Assyria and the lower part Judah has been prophesied that Babylon is coming to take them away as well And they're standing and looking at God and going, how can this be? How can the God, their gods be more, be stronger than our God? He even gets more specific as he speaks to them and he says, look, I'm actually going to send a redeemer for you when Babylon comes and takes you away. And I'm not only going to tell you that, I'm also going to give you his name, Cyrus. He's going to come in Just over a hundred years, he's going to come and he's going to free you from Babylon. But the Jews are expressing doubts. How can this be? We don't believe you because right now we are suffering. And we don't see evidence of you here. So what Isaiah 46 is going to do is he's going to present his case before them to see if they have any valid argument To not trust him. So let's look at the text today in Isaiah 46. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs. I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down it and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, 
and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Lord, we come before you today and we pray that your message will come forth, Lord, that your gospel will be clear. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. In the midst of this court case, God is presenting who he is. If you read all the surrounding chapters, he keeps on saying, your idols are nothing. I'm far greater than them. But specifically here, he's drawing a distinction to say, look at how I relate to time. If you noticed as we were reading through, there's lots of time language that he's revealing. He's saying there's none other like me as I stand in relation to time. Because the truth is God is a God of the past and the future. First, we'll look at what he reveals about himself of being the God of the past. God was there at the beginning. Look at verse 10. He says he's declaring the end from the beginning. He's declaring the end from the beginning. He didn't stumble upon what's going to happen in the end. At the very beginning of time, he already declares how it's going to end. If you will, just step back a chapter to Isaiah 45 and look at verses 18 and 19. He says, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Right there, he's making the argument that he was there at the beginning in creation. Notice the language that he uses. It says, he did not create it empty. So he goes on, he also says, you did not pursue me in vain. Vain here meaning an emptiness. It wasn't fruitless. It wasn't pursuing a bubble. The truth is, God's revealing himself that nothing he does is empty. From the very beginning, everything that God has ever done is full. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every single thing that God has ever done is full of life, meaning, and purpose. Just think about yourself for a moment. Has every word that you've ever said 
been full of life, meaning, and purpose? Has everything that you've ever written down been full of meaning? Nothing for God is filler. He didn't say, oh, well, I'll just write 66 books of the Bible. We'll fill it with some Job stories and some other stories and, you know, just skim over those genealogies because those aren't really important, only for historians. No, every single thing that God has ever spoken is filled with infinite wonder. We often sing here the coronation doxology that says, Now blessed be Jehovah God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous works in glory that excel. Who only doeth wondrous works. God cannot do a work that is not wondrous. So when you're in the midst of a trial, you have to remember the God that you're speaking to. He didn't make a mistake with your trial. He's doing a wondrous work. We have to trust him in that. He's filling everything with wonder from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, 2, God creates time and space. He's outside of both of them. Think about that for a moment. As we go through Scripture, it gets revealed to us over and over again. The theologians say God is of the eternal present. For him, it's always present. Look at how he chooses to reveal himself to Moses. Right, The very personal name that he gives to Moses. Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell these people that you are that I'm talking to? And of course he says, I am. Think about all the options that God could have chosen to reveal himself to the world. He could have said, I'm the omnipotent one. I'm the strong arm. I'm any of those things. He just chose to say, I am. I always exist in the present. That's how he chose to reveal himself. In the scripture reading today, Jesus, of course, reveals himself in the same way. And he gets himself in trouble. He says, yeah, before, before Abraham was born, I am. And they pick up stones to kill him because he's obviously claiming that he's existed for all time. That's amazing that God has chosen to reveal himself in relation to time that way. He's always in the present. Augustine says this in his confessions. He says, if you, God, sorry, in you, the present day has no ending. And yet it has its end. All these things have their being in you. They would have no way of passing away unless you set a limit to them. Because your years do not fail, your years are one today. The past, the future that we experience, God does not experience in the same way. If God were ever to stop thinking upon something, he would certainly cease to exist. That gives a whole new definition to his power. Just taking his attention away from something would cause it to not exist anymore. 
If God's outside of time, he does not move linearly through it like we do from past to present to future. One way to come to terms with this is to think of those old uh, movie editors and those old reels for a movie. Movie editor can lay out all these different frames of the movie. He can see the beginning of the movie and he can see the end of the movie at the same time. God does that with our lives. He can see the beginning. He can see the end. He can see you are present right now. The difference is God actually interacts with all of them at the same time. That's amazing to us. We journey through it. That is why we have so many doubts, because we don't see the future. We don't trust God that he actually knows what's going to happen or this trial that I'm facing right now is actually going to glorify him in some way. We think he's moving through it like we are. Well, he'll work it out, but I don't think he's got it under control. No, he sees it already. Another way of thinking of it is he's actually already present with you in the future. He's there with you. He's there with you now. One of the largest promises that God ever gives in the Bible is, I will always be with you. It's because he's always with you. Already. If God is outside of time, his prediction about Cyrus coming is not that large of a prediction at all. We could even say it's not a prediction. It's certainty. He already sees it. It will happen for it has happened and is happening to him. Think of the Jews. They were going, I, we can't trust you. And he says, I'm already certain. I already see it. I've already called him by name. Not only is he the God of the past, of the very existence of all matter, but he's also the God of the past for believers. Look at the language he uses for Israel. In verse 1 and verse 3, he is talking about, uh, sorry, verse 3, he's saying this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born or carried by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. If you take time, maybe later today or some other time, and you go back through all of Isaiah, starting at chapter 40, over and over and over again, he says, I chose you, Israel. I made you. From their birth, from the womb, he is call them into a people, and he has sustained them through it all. He does this to show a large contrast to the idols that they have adopted. Look at the language he uses. He says in, in verse 1, here they are, their idols are on beasts and on livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens. They make the idols... Then they carry them, and then they weigh themselves down with these idols. In contrast, Jesus is saying, uh, God is saying, I made you, and I carry you, and I take all your burdens. It's not a strong contrast to what they have. They create something and suffer from it. God creates us. And he takes on our suffering. He's carrying us through. 
In light of all of this, it's certainly pure arrogance on our part and the Israelites and defiant not to listen to the one who created time and space and knows all things. Think for a moment what this really means. We claim possession of those things that we create. If, if I were to make a cake, I could say, this is my cake. If I were to make a poem, I could say, this is my poem. If I were to sire a child, I could say, this is my child, except for when it's disobedient, then it's my wife's. <laughs> we recognize inherently that creation and possession are inextricably linked. Creation and possession. If you create something, you possess it. We recognize this with Israel. God tells them explicitly when he created them, he pulled them out of Egypt and he made them his people. In Deuteronomy 7, he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God never answers why he actually chose Israel to be his people. He never actually answers why he chose you to be his people. But he did. Before time began, he chose you. Not only is Scripture full of references about predestination in Romans 8 and others, highlighting the fact that God is sovereign over our salvation from the beginning of time, but also God owns us by buying us back, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. What's more is that the mark of God's possession is on every single atom in this universe. And thus the very atoms that make up our bodies are His possession. God, at the beginning of time and space, implicitly and explicitly, laid claim to all that we are. Our entire beings, both physical and immaterial, are rightly owned by God and sustained by him. And yet somehow there is a thought in our head that we have the right to be autonomous. Sometimes we say no one should tell us what to do. With our bodies. Nobody should tell me what to do with my job. Nobody should tell me what to do with my life. God can. God owns you. He owns every single atom that makes up your being. He has the right to tell us what to do with that which he owns and has created. Think for a moment even about your own thoughts. The most intimate thing that we have is our own thoughts. And yet as we stop to think about it, it's really hard for us to even think how we have control over our own thoughts. Where do they originate? Why is it that you're thinking about something right now? Did you generate that will to pull that thought into being? When you get inspired by something, where does that inspiration come from? If you're not inspired, why don't you just whip up inspiration and make it happen? We can't even control or even speak about how we think, and yet we think we have the right to our own lives. God here is saying, no, look, I'm over it all. From the very beginning of time, 
I was there and I possess it. It's not only in the past, he also is making certain that the Jews and us, that we know that he's over the end as well. Look at all the language that he uses, especially in verses 10 through 13. He says he's declaring the end. Things not yet done. This will shall stand. I will accomplish. I will bring it to pass. I will do it. I will put salvation here. Doesn't sound like he's uncertain about what's going to happen. He's declaring it with great certainty. If God were not certain of the end, even if he were all powerful, some doubt could be raised as whether he truly is all powerful. Because if things could change in the future, there would be some uncertainty about who he is. We know that certainty of the future brings comfort. That's often why we try to comfort people by saying that that will be all right. It will all work out in the end. But we're saying that dishonestly because we don't really know how it's going to work out. But when God speaks and he says that, he knows. That's why it's comforting, because he knows. He tells us right from the beginning. There are some theologians called open theists who believe that God doesn't actually see the future, that he's just moving through time like we are, but he's powerful enough to encounter anything that comes along and twist it to good. Well, if that were true, then God would not be sovereign over the future. Time would actually dictate to him when things took place. They would put a structure and a withholding on him. In that, he would necessarily be a slave to time. If that were true, we would wisely worship time over God instead. This is a good time to stop and pause to think of how do we structure our days? What truly dictates the structure of our days, God or time? Can you recall any time that your morning devotions or prayer time were just so sweet that you lost track of time, that you missed an appointment because you were just in worship of God? Or is time always pressing in? I need to get done praying in five minutes because then I have to go. Think about which has more power over your day-to-day life. How quickly do we evaluate relationships based on time? That person's life is messy. I'm not sure if I really have the time to get involved with that. Or I don't have time to disciple that person because I'm too busy serving the Lord. How much of our day-to-day lives are dictated by time? Certainly God uses time to bring order to our days, but we're often enslaved by it. If you look at Jesus' life, he was not enslaved by time. He goes into these, these cities, and they, those that are, uh, need healing come to him, but he leaves before all the people are healed in that city. He had the power to heal everyone. He thought it was more important to spend time with his father. Isn't that amazing that he would do that? God is so sovereign over 
the future that they actually bring up a new grammatical tense when you're going into the Bible called the prophetic perfect tense. In English, perfect tense means it's been completed. The prophetic perfect tense is when, they're, when the prophets are speaking about the future, they often use the perfect tense as though it's already been completed in the past. So when you read in the beginning of Isaiah about one to come, they say, and he came. Because it's already certain. God's already got the whole future. At this point, we have to stop briefly to talk about what is the biblical concept of memory. Because if you notice, right in the middle of this big argument, God calls us to remember. Look at verse 8. He says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Well, the Hebrew understanding of memory is slightly different than our current understanding of memory. If you were to look up memory or the act of remembering in a, a dictionary today, it may say something like this. The faculty by which we, which the mind stores and remembers information. Sounds really digital in our era. If you go back, though, and look at what memory was further back in time, you'll get definitions like this. Reflection. Attention. One writer says this, the act of remembering is making present the voices of what is past, not to entomb either the past or the present, but to give them life together in a place common to both in memory. In the Hebrew understanding, when you are to remember something, what you're literally doing is taking what happened in the past and applying it to the present. Whatever happened back here, you're applying it to the present. You can see this all over in the Bible, but certainly the most extensive one is when when God is saying that he remembered his people. God didn't simply forget who his people were when they were in Egypt and said, oh yeah, I remember I brought them there, but I can't remember what happened there for the next 400 years. No, God, when he says he remembers his people, he's applying the promises he gave them in the past to the present situation and saving them. And 14 times through the Old Testament, it says God remembered his people through his covenant. That's the promise that he gave them of what's going to come. So when he remembers, he's applying that truth now. So you look at verse 8, and it says, remember this and stand firm. It's not a recalling to mind to say, oh yeah, I should memorize this verse or memorize the things God has done. He's saying, call those truths from before and apply them to the present. God is not simply calling us to the place, the proposition that Christ died on the cross or to some kind of mental acknowledgement that we must work hard to keep right in our mind. Rather, only God has the power to make that event have true power for all time by carrying it forth through history. 
We receive the power from that event when we remember it. When we allow that event to move from merely an ascent to an action that shapes all we do. When the Bible here is saying, recall it to mind, that word mind is actually heart. For the Hebrews, heart was the center of your being. So when you're remembering something, you're taking it from the past and you're putting it in the very center of your being to change who you are now. Because God is all about his power changing you now, not just in the past. And that is why God is the God of the present as well. Notice right after he says, remember this in verse 8, he says, and stand firm. It is that act of remembering that allows you to stand firm in the present. What this standing firm is actually translated in the Hebrew is, be men. All the ladies are excited about that. Be men. No, what it means here is to be mature versus be, ch- be children. As you remember from our memory verse before, if you're children, you're tossed to and fro. Here, by remembering and reseeding that truth in the inner part of your being, you're able to stand firm and not doubt what is coming your way. He says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are, who are far from righteousness. <clears throat> That's who he's addressing, is the stubborn of heart, and that is us. And look at what he does with that. He says, I bring near my righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. <clears throat> God is not waiting for obedience before he acts in salvation. He's not waiting for us to obey before he moves towards us. In the immediate context, it is clear that God's referring to Cyrus, the anointed one who will bring salvation to God's people. However, when God acts, it is for the benefit of all time. The salvation of Cyrus should have had the Jews trusting the promise that the anointed one, Jesus, From the Jews would truly come and save once and for all. All God's acts are eternal in Christ. Christ brings to bear the past, the present and the future in his acts. In Colossians 1.17 it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is is the person that holds all things together. He sustains all things right now. Christ is the center of time. Just as Christ was intimately present in the creating of that flowing river in Genesis that was flew, that was coming out of Eden, he was also present as the rock in the desert where the water came out. He was present when the water came from his side on the cross, and he's going to be present in the new Jerusalem when the water flows out of the city. And as it says in believers, he's present in us when the water flows out of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not far off. It's always present. 
This is why the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is crucial to understanding God's relation to time. When Christ met his disciples in the upper room, he was powerfully linking the past, the present, and the future. Much could be said about the passage in Luke, but this is what he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he quickly follows it up with a cup and states, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is time overlapping. He's taking the Passover and he's putting it in the present and looking to the future supper of the Lamb at the same time. The present power of Christ is applied for, is applied for a new covenant is established. And Christ references the future feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb. What is more is Christ is calling his disciples to remember, to bring to present, the, to bring that present moment into future moments with power. He also established this as a new covenant, so we are made aware that God the Father will also remember his covenant with his people by applying it in future situations. In Isaiah 42, he says, My servant is the covenant that I am bringing. When God remembers his covenant, he's remembering Christ's power in you. Well, this all sounds good in the abstract. God has made his case that he's sovereign over everything. And that you should trust him because of that. The problem is when we start applying it to our own lives. When we look at the present or next step God is calling to us, we begin to doubt. We begin to say, God has called me here and now I am suffering. God cannot be trusted. Or why did God call me here to fail? God certainly can't be trusted. Or as a serpent used in the garden, there is a good God And yet he's keeping me from this other good. I can't trust him. We all experience these, but I urge you to remember God. We need to continually immerse ourselves in the church. To be surrounded by others applying the truths of the past and the future to their present realities. They're preaching the gospel to themselves every day. Because it is in the present that salvation is had. We need to believe that what Christ has done has been done for our present situation. The God of the universe, the God over space and time, knows no time and space too small for his expansive love. In Christ, we can trust God because all time comes together in him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time of your word. We pray that your truths would be applied to us and that we would feel the power of your salvation here and now. Help us trust your good name. In Jesus' name, amen.